but would you propose that you'd need a lot more plus and only for new or just in those studies to try to to try to have the effect central or just kids walking well around the so that 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 chinese study wouldn't lead to a practical treatment really because you can't just go around uncorrected um if you're creative you could maybe come up with a way to leverage that finding but that gets into the area of intellectual property and maybe i want to you know patent something in that area but um any case uh, so here's a great case um um i had this ortho k patient um sibling pair actually doing very well uh and um then COVID hits and um one kid becomes fairly non-compliant with their ortho k because sometimes kids forget Kids focus on, hey, I can wake up and see, I can do sports, I can swim. It's like magic. That's what they care about. Parents say, I'm willing to spend X because I care about your eyes not getting worse. So parents have one thing that they care about. Kids have the other thing. Kids don't really think, you know, when I'm 55, I'll have a three times uh, less uh, risk of myopic maculopathy. They don't, they don't think that. So... When COVID hits and they have, they're not uh, in California, they've been in, under house arrest for a year. They can't go out. They can't go out in the sunshine. They can't ex get exposed to ultraviolet light, which by the way, kills viruses. That's enough to get this podcast destroyed. Yeah, it's done. Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Thomas Aller. We discussed myopia management, peripheral and central defocus, as well as axial length, and talked a lot about some of the nuances in different lens designs. It was an illuminating conversation to me. I had a lot of fun with this conversation. I hope you do as well. And as always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. We've been providing myopia control treatments in our practice for years. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, CooperVision has received FDA approval of its innovative MySight one-day contact lens. This will be the cornerstone of a comprehensive myopia management approach to be offered by CooperVision. This daily wear, single-use contact lens is the first and only FDA-approved product clinically proven to slow the progression of myopia when initially prescribed for children 8 to 12 years old and when compared to children in the control group wearing a single-vision one-day contact lens. Check out the show notes for all the specific prescribing details and to get more information about this lens and how you can begin to offer it in your practice. Well, I'm in uh, San Bruno, California, just a little bit south of uh, San Francisco. Right, uh, northern end, you could say, of the Silicon Valley. We've got uh, Google, YouTube, just up the street here, uh, taking over the city uh, gradually. And um, been in practice for 30, I don't want to think about it, maybe 38 years, 37 years. Uh, most of it's been in, in uh, private practice, uh, mostly here. Before we get into that, you know, um, one of the things that uh, that I'm interested in, in is just your evolution to probably orthokeratology, myopia management. Like, 
that a part of your practice for a long time? What's what sparked it? Mm, well, I was I was an ortho K patient back uh, when I was 16, uh, which is a long, long time ago. It was probably minus two. And so that's old school ortho K baby. That's uh, PMMAs, uh, gradually changing the curve. Uh, it's Dr. Johnson. And um, he was, uh, I guess uh, we'll call him a disciple of um, May and Grant and, and that, that whole school. Uh, it's all before your time by a little bit perhaps. But uh, I ended up working in his practice as a college undergrad. Um, might have been before I was thinking about optometry or, or maybe after, can't quite recall. But we would modify the lenses and put them on a, a spinner and open up the curves and get it to change its behavior. And uh, so I thought that was fascinating. He was able to give me good vision without glasses, although I had to wear them in the daytime. Um, so that was probably instrumental in getting me to just have it, at least in the back of my mind, uh, about optometry as a career. And Ortho K actually is a large part of that for what. Uh, what promise it had even in the, in the early stages. And then, um, I think that there's something to, Oh, sorry, sorry. No, I, go I ahead. Think there's something to be said for, um, you know, it takes so long. You have these visionaries who probably nobody will ever know unless, you know, people like you talk about to understand that they, they think that they could do what we're in fact doing right now, by slowing progression. Um, did, was that entering into their mind at all? Do you recall? Well, there's been a long-standing assumption, not not too based in science, that gas permeable lenses had a tendency to slow down nearsightedness, and uh, you could see how that would happen. Just patients would say, you know, since I got gas permeable or hard lenses way back when, uh, I saw better when I took them off. I didn't have to change the powers very often, and. Um, most of that was uh, hidden by other factors, but there was an assumption that you could use hard lenses to slow uh, down uh, nearsightedness changes. Um, and so that, that might've been in the back of their minds. I think in ortho K, um, trying to think who might've been the first to think about ortho K as a myopia progression suppression tool. Uh, and one would think it would have to be after the reverse geometry revolution and the overnight wear, because uh, that would be the only time that you would, uh, well, you'd create those kinds of optical profiles would, that are known to slow myopia and um, axial length, which you were interested in, or Cheryl was, uh, would be key to actually discovering those interactions just because uh, in orthokay, it's very difficult to know what you're finding. Uh, unless you have axial length. I mean, to know for sure, you can make assumptions about base curve changes and over refractions, and that's that's in a reasonable way to get at it. But uh, axial length allows you to be certain about what you're finding and allows you to convince other people. Do you think that, so when you're talking about ortho K when you were six, that's different than what I think about, right? Like you were talking about daytime, I'm thinking, I always think. So yeah. is that the case that you were able to, were you able to actually get to the context, 
have them during the day when you were growing up? No, it was, um, so you could say it was maybe a debatable advantage. Um, you're wearing contacts. And then when you take, maybe you take them off for sports or you take them off at the end of the day and, and you see, well, uh, you could take them off uh, in unfriendly environments. And there are plenty of unfriendly environments to a gas permeable daytime wearer, uh, dust and bike riding. And, you know, so you, it gave you uh, a limited uh, glimpse of freedom. Uh, waking up in the morning, um, pretty sure I saw fine you know, and um, long, uh, actually I remember some long uh, backpacking trips where maybe I didn't wear the lens and old school photography, you know, with focusing and my, I look back at my photos and they got less and less sort of focused during the trip. So I don't think I wore my lenses during um, camping trips, for instance. So it was limited freedom. Um, it morphed into, I would say, probably in my application, in my practice, in those early days, it was more for adults. And really, it's uh, fire and police and CHP and pilots, you know, who want to pass vision tests. So they pass their vision test, they either continue with the lens, or they just pass the test. And then, uh, you know, they don't get fired or their vision gets worse. So uh, that was a large application for that technology at the time. It wasn't really for kids. Maybe for 16-year-olds who didn't like to wear glasses, uh, that, that might have been um, the appeal for me. So then, uh, how many guys do you think in the when you were 16 were doing? So it was just oh. happen chance that you saw an optometrist? I think he... Um, no, I chose them because there was an article in the uh, paper. Papers are these big format uh, printed things on a long you paper. Get your hands dirty? You get your hands dirty and you read it and you say, oh, this guy, uh, he makes vision better. I said, that's cool. And I talked my parents into it. And um, it's uh, <laughs> probably the fees back then are similar to what the fees are today. It's kind of interesting how that's gone in optometry. Uh, but um, I don't remember what the fees were. They, they didn't make me pay for it. So, uh, so uh, yeah. Yeah. But there would be maybe, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say my mom uh, kind of remembers her first pair of, of, you know, custom soft lenses, traditional soft lenses. I can't remember how much they were, but I, I want to say early. Yeah. Maybe, Could be. maybe no, it had to be, had to be 70. Mm. But yeah, yeah, those were the days. Huh? Yeah, don't don't even do the inflation calculation on that. But um, yeah, uh, so there were so ortho K was not well regarded. They they had to be sort of mavericks and a little bit out on the fringe. Um, I've been out on the fringe sometimes. I didn't, I didn't place myself there, but that's that's where I was placed by others early in, in my rantings and ravings about, hey, you know, myopia can be uh, slowed down quite effectively with really pathetically uh, um, defective presbyopia contact lenses. And so nobody, nobody believed that. But for orthokay, there were people actively against it. How could you possibly, you know, alter the shape of the cornea? It's you know, it's dangerous. It's much better to, you know, vaporize it with a laser, of course. Uh, so 
they were, uh, you know, in the early days of the ortho case societies, um, trying to think the names that Nerf and um, uh, there were some other earlier iterations. Uh, they were uh, a fun loving group that were enjoying learning new things and um, improving lives and um, mostly having fun with it. And, um, but it wasn't uh, at all commonly uh, accepted in optometry, certainly not in ophthalmology. Did it have to get, was, was it safe to say that once you had a, um, FDA approval from with DRT, Paragon, that that started changing? I still think, I mean, if you look at ophthalmology guidelines right now, and orthokeratology, they still have a little, a little blurb uh, about, you know, the, the safety potential, the risk of safety, like they're completely ignoring Bullimore and all that stuff, but they, they still got to throw in that it might not be safe. Um, but, but in any case, so there's still the, the laggard, but uh, do you think that, is it safe to say that Paragon CRT sort of paved the way for more Oh, certainly uh, getting uh, approval for overnight wear uh, in that modality was, was key. And they've really pushed the envelope and moved the profession over the years with, with their designs and making it easier to introduce to uh, novice uh, optometrists. Uh, they have a fair number of ophthalmologists uh, doing ortho-K as well, uh, Bruce Koffler, um, I don't know if he actually does it, but he's, he's perfectly fine being a proponent of it and having it done in his office and he's written about it, which is helpful. Um, so, and then they have their new innovation uh, with their smaller optical zone about which there is much debate, uh, which is fair until we prove that we can change parameters on the lens and improve outcomes. But um, it's certainly plausible and it's nice to have that capability within that design family as well. So let's talk about that a little bit. I, um, what, what is your thought on how meticulous on optics? And then we can, and then we can dive deeper into you know, pupil sizes and how that, all that stuff. So optical zone, how important are they in your practice? And how much do you deviate or um, well, probably for the last six years or so, I've been using mostly a custom uh, lens um, that allows me to make those changes. And that was, uh, uh, that decision was um, driven by uh, Eddie Chow's work uh, showing that with a smaller optical zone and aspheric uh, reverse curve and increased plus in the, in the ring and bringing that in closer and all the things you're attempting to do with that design and their four or five year study, uh, they showed um, some interesting findings, um, never been published, um, but sometimes when you a little bit out there and it uh, goes against what people's assumptions are, there's a higher level you have to get over to, um, to get people willing to, uh, to publish, for instance, but assuming that what they found was related to the design, I started to use a design similar to that, um, 
no royalties to Eddie, um, but um, he can always ask for some, I suppose, a beer or something. But it's not like I actually using his design. It's just a smaller zone. It's another company's version of um, just how to, uh, well, they're not even probably allowed as a company to say this is for the purpose of controlling myopia, but they give you the tools. Uh, so I've been using, uh, I would say probably my average might be a 5.4 millimeter optical zone with a um, astericity uh, and um, with that general design and I'd earlier used another design that was sort of defaulted for high myopia in their design formula or family. And so it was the high myopia design for low myopes and it's, it's defaulted to smaller zones, uh, which oftentimes you would need in a high myopia case just for refractive purposes. And um, I've always thought just from the literature that the, the higher the prescription that you start with, the more capable the lens is of slowing things down because you're talking about the curvature change, the differential between the center and the periphery uh, is presumed to be kind of the, the strength of the signal. And um, do we know that for sure? Uh, we don't know that for sure, but it's plausible to me. So as a practitioner, I don't feel compelled to be uh, convinced by five, you know, uh, randomized controlled clinical trials, uh, testing every possible hypothesis. You know, we're intelligent people. Uh, we can make rational uh, conclusions from uh, from early work and from practitioners' observations and retrospective studies. So um, if you wait for something to be proven completely, you'll be waiting a long time. And um, yeah, it's interesting how, how I think a lot of times in optometry, we wait for that. I think, I think you'll, you'll hear that in a lot of cases. People obviously on the outskirts of what, of what we do, who are usually, well, in, in many cases, in the bar the right direction. Some cases, obviously not. And that's where the criticism is, but the, you know, I, until recently, I was always able to ask an audience, I would talk to them, well, where's the last uh, randomized placebo controlled clinical trial you saw that indicate that a topical steroid, at least in the short term, was appropriate for the of ocular surface. You know, trying to prove the point, obviously, that it's a common practice underlying ideology, inflammatory components of ocular surface and how frequently prescribed. Um, that's not to say that we don't want evidence, but it is to say that we should, we should have the understanding, well, what makes logical sense based on mm -hmm. And if what we know says this, and there's some evidence behind it, and, um, and it's, then, then it makes sense to kind of direction. And I suspect that, that, if it's the case, well, let me, let me, let me ask you this. What would somebody who would oppose your thought on optic zone diameter, what would they say? Like, why is that controversial? Oh, I don't know if it's controversial. I think, uh, it's unnecessary. When, when, when you're drawing, uh, you know, clinical conclusions from available evidence and putting it into practice, um, that's that's one uh, that's one element of it. If if the evidence isn't as strong, if it's not evidence that could convince everybody, so good quality randomized studies, etc., 
then you also have to temper your claims and expectations. You can't go out and advertise that, for instance, and say, if you use this lens with this design, you will get this effect. Uh, you can say what your expectations are. You just have to be cautious about acting like you know for sure what will happen. Uh, but if you, like I say, if you wait until it's provable to everybody with no argument, um, we'll have generations and generations of kids who will be burdened with the future risk of uh, blinding conditions because we were too cautious to do reasonable things to, to slow myopia down. Do you think that, that myopia can be done well in a, in a primary care practice? Well, I think it's the obligation of uh, practitioners, optometry and ophthalmology to do so. Uh, it's now the official position of the American Academy of Ophthalmology. Um, it's the official position of the World Council of Optometry. It's, um, I would think it's likely the official position of the American uh, Optometric Association. They have uh, recent guidelines on it. It was uh, updated, I believe. You can correct me if I'm wrong about that. And if it's not the official policy of the American Academy of Optometry, it certainly should be. So there's a growing body of, of um, you know, companies, organizations, et cetera, associations uh, that are telling us that we should um, identify people at risk for myopia, uh, modify those risks. Everybody's happy to tell kids to go outside. There's decent evidence of that. Um, Sometimes they seem to be limited only to that. Like, uh, well, in the recent New York Times article, uh, which was decent as far as talking about the uh, challenges of myopia, um, the only thing they were willing to go out on a limb on is that, uh, you know, the big yellow thing in the sky, uh, in addition to causing skin cancer and cataracts and, you know, macular degeneration would be good to slow down myopia, but there's nothing else that would work. They do mention ortho-K bifocal contacts atrophy and say there's studies going, but that sort of just reflects the need for people who uh, express their opinion about something to really have it totally backed completely with no question by the underlying science. And um, clinicians aren't obligated to do that. I mean, you're obligated to bring in your practice things that you know that work, that the evidence supports uh, reasonably, but you're not obligated to wait until uh, every person in the world is convinced that it's, it's helpful. Just help kids not get worse, and uh, that's your obligation. How, in your area, so still in my area, um, I would say that it's probably me, Cheryl, Really, one other one other uh, provider that I know is pretty intense. I mean, at least, yeah. I, I mean, when I say yeah, I'm, my associates doing um, a lot of it. I'm doing a lot of it. Um, Cheryl's doing a lot of it. And yeah, one other in in a, a town of a million people in the metropolitan area. And so, you know, my my concern always is that people sort of dip their toe in. Uh, they listen to people who are talking about axial length, changing optical zone. Uh, it's just, it's just immediately, or, you know, it's like, man, that's going to be really hard. It's right. So yeah. 
you know, w where's the balance between between uh, making it accessible to a, a number of, of practitioners or patients uh, to compared to really being able to halt halt the disease by all these small fine you're talking about. Well, um, so I've actually written on that. I forget where it was, probably a review of myopia management or maybe optometric management, but it was, um, uh, I just laid out the argument that there, there are a number of ways that optometry, optometrists, ophthalmologists can help to control myopia. Right now and for hundreds of years, or you know, many years anyway, while well, myopia has been increasing rapidly and it's been obviously a problem, um, mostly we are either stepping on the gas or we're in neutral, you know. Mostly, I think we're stepping on the gas. Now, people will debate that because it's not well proven that if you put uh, a single vision lens on a growing child where you have a lot of extra minus in the periphery, which is perfectly acceptable to the FDA, you got a minus three that measures a minus four, it's a minus seven in the periphery, that's perfectly okay. Nothing wrong with there, keep on moving. That's perfect, that's great for kids. But if you have a minus three, that's a minus three, or maybe it doesn't much matter, but let's say it's a minus three, and in the periphery, it's a minus one or it's a plano, that's awful because this kind of curve is good and this kind of curve is bad. I mean, it's just insane. That's just literally insane, um, which is so strange coming from the federal government. They're not listening, are they? Um, well, so. Probably are. This is how uh, I get it. That, what's that? You're breaking up. You're breaking up. Yeah, yeah. You didn't get that, right? You can cut <laughs> that out. But in case, yeah. so, so that's ridiculous. But I think um, that there's no support for putting lenses on that have uh, excess negative spherical aberration. Um, I use those lenses to uh, reduce hypropia. I uh, should be working on a paper uh, after many, many years of doing a number of cases um, where I show that if you use a near center multifocal contact lens with a, what would then be a negative uh, peripheral add that you can stimulate the growth of hypropes and turn them into imitropes. And you stop at the right time and they don't become myopes. Actually, uh, it's but, off topic, but- So who designed, how do, you, how do you design one of those lenses and are you using orthokeratology to do it or are you no. using a custom software? No, I suppose you could do ortho-K. I, I haven't done that on purpose, but it's a, a custom soft lens. Um, yep. So um, there's a study in England that just uh, completed where they used uh, Cooper Biofinity near center lenses uh, uh, for the purpose of reducing hyperopia. And they showed a, a difference between the groups. It was um, a modest effect, but it's a modest lens uh, for that application. I found with hyperopes, at least the way I think about it, you kind of have to kick them. You know, they just, they're not growing. They never grow at all. You know, it's just like nothing. So that eye is just kind of set. And I think you sort of have to shock them a little bit. Um, I've got this case. I think that there's... yeah. No, go ahead. I want to I hear this. Oh, well, I got this case where uh, it was a anisometrope, uh, former amblyope. Um, we treated years ago with patching and he started doing an anti-hyperopia contact on one eye. And for 18 months, there was no movement. I tried different designs. I tried, my reasoning was 
you know, he's so used to ignoring this I, that gives me carte blanche to go real aggressive. You know, I could do a, a one millimeter zone and a eight diopter minus, you know, well, the company wouldn't make an eight diopter, but I went up to a four diopter. And so I'm just trying to push everything, trying to kick this kid and nothing happened. Each eye was kind of growing at sort of a slow emetropic rate. And then uh, I finally decided that maybe what's going on is he's so used to ignoring the eye, he's just not, his brain, his visual system, uh, actually the eye, because it's supposed to be local, uh, just wasn't responding. And so I said, well, let's try patching the good eye and playing video games. Now, when I told the kid he had to play video games one hour a day for the next month, his eyes lit up and he looked at his mom. He says, hey, this guy's really, uh, I like this guy. Um, but what's really interesting is in the next month, he had more eye length change in that eye than the entire 18 months prior, if I recall correctly. So, And the, the eye that was patched actually shrank a little bit by zero uh, two millimeters. So uh, I was just discussing this case with um, Earl Smith. I saw him recently and he thought uh, that um, possibly it would have more to do with um, more precise accommodation when you isolate the eye. Whereas if let's say you don't get it perfectly balanced, then with yoked accommodation with both eyes open, you know, the the treatment eye is only going to get the, the focus that the non-treated eye is going to impose on it. And so maybe you're not quite getting the signal that you want. But if you patch the eye, whether you play a video game or not, then the eye has a chance to adjust its accommodation precisely, and maybe that improve the signal. Uh, but either way, the kid liked the video game uh, theory. And um, so, um, but now with this kid, the next month he was non-compliant and then it didn't grow. And the next month he was compliant and it did grow. So to me, that's an on and off signal. So uh, we're continuing with it and um, stay tuned if you'd like to care about hyperopia. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> no, it's all interesting to me. I, I, um, what was interesting, what I wonder, so you, in this, what you're talking about now, true then the retina, the peripheral retina specifically, sense direction blur. It, it can actually sense that you have hyperopic blur versus myopic blur. That's your proposal. And so the not my proposal. to the directionality. Well, yeah, yeah but, but in this case that you're talking about. Well, in any case, um, it's either pretty well proven. Well, it's probably proven that the eye can tell the direction of the focus or the type of defocus, otherwise it wouldn't grow the way we want it to grow when we manipulate lenses, let's say, in, in chick or monkey, for instance. So clearly it knows. People debate maybe how does it know? Is it uh, chromatic aberration? You know, you excite certain cones more than the other, or uh, there's a number of theories. So, um, you know, the theories are nice and mechanisms are nice, but if you demonstrate something that has the effect that you want, you can run with that and wait for the scientists and the academics to come up with, uh, you know, some consensus on the mechanism. But yeah, it's and it's not so much just the periphery. Um, so I'm, I'm somewhat known for, among other things, uh, the, for the phrase any damn plus any damn place. And um, 
reason I started saying that is because there's such an assumption that everything's about the periphery, only a distant center contact lens would work. Um, but I started 30 years ago, um, never heard of Earl Smith at that time. He probably never heard of me at that time, I'm speculating. But uh, in any case, um, he never said that you must use the periphery to modulate growth. He just said that the signals received by the periphery can uh, overwhelm the signals um, received by the macula. So in their monkey experiments, they ablate the macula and they can still get growth. So he would say maybe the center, the fovea is not necessary for growth, but it's not not involved. Um, well, then how do you so, explain the, the, the study of under correction and actually accelerating refractive? Is that well, I got some, or? I've got I've got some good theories about that. For for instance, the the major study uh, on that, the uh, classic study uh, by we'll call him Adler instead of Aller. Um, that's a spectacle study with a mildly undercorrected full time eyeglass. So essentially, you're mildly uh, undercorrected for distance and. You're still corrected for near. They didn't give them any advice about taking them off. They weren't bifocal glasses or anything like that. So once you accommodate, you're fully focused for near. And if you have a lag or, you know, inaccurate accommodation, uh, it, there's no benefit to it. All right. So they, it's been interpreted variously, but mostly it's been interpreted as um, at the very least, it was not suppressing growth. And it may have accelerated growth from based on their assumptions. I'd have to go back and read it to see. But I, I believe yeah, there was that, that's basically the people do debate a little bit about whether it was just merely lack of suppression or whether it, it may have stimulated a little bit. But in other studies where they use a large amount of defocus in China, not too long ago, uh, where they had corrected versus non-corrected kids. So they might have had a plus three effectively binocularly. Um, in that study, uh, they showed a suppression of growth. So minimally undercorrecting somebody is worthless, I think, uh, for um, full-time distance eyeglasses. I've used it a little bit just in the sense of when I have used bifocal eyeglasses, in the case of an ESO or ESO fixation disparity, which first started me on this whole odyssey 30 years ago is just the eyeglass studies that implied that if they used them on everybody, they didn't work. But if they did a analysis of the ESOs, it did work. And what I very early on decided to use was fixation disparity because it never made sense to me to care about what happens to an eye when it's covered. It's pointless. People don't read that way, except this kid with the anti-hyperopia contact playing video games when it's good. But otherwise you have both eyes open. Are your eyes crossed in reality, misaligned? Do you adjust your accommodation to fix that by increasing your lag? I think you do. And so I would use bifocal contacts to address that, but simultaneously addressing two, two issues with the peripheral defocus that, that came in later. So for eyeglasses, I would tend to undercorrect a little. I might give them a little bit of base out prism and then I hope that they'll use the bifocal, but if they're looking at a screen like we're looking at, kids aren't gonna do this. So a little bit of undercorrection, a little bit of prism, I dealt with um, avoiding a fixation disparity while they were on 
on their computer. So I would use that for glasses. So but I, I forget your original question because I went off on a tangent no, my, there. No, no, that's, that's hey, that's where you get the good stuff. The my, my I think my original question, maybe I can I can clarify it a little bit, but you know, you answered it largely. But how much central plus would you expect, and would it have to be just for near? Like in those studies, you proposed that there was three diopters blur uh, of myopic blur in the Asian study that you referenced. But then you also said that you, the, in the undercorrection study, they were taking glasses off and they weren't using enough of, so they had this near portion where they were accommodating or they may have it on and still, there's still no blur. But would you propose that you'd need a lot more plus and only for near or just in those studies to try to, to try to have the effect centrally? Or just well, so that 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 Chinese study wouldn't lead to a practical treatment, really, because you can't just go around uncorrected. Um, if you're creative, you could maybe come up with a way to leverage that finding, but that gets into the area of intellectual property, and maybe I want to, you know, patent something in that area. But um, in any case, uh, so here's a great case. Um, um, I had this ortho K patient, um, sibling pair actually doing very well. Uh, and, um, then COVID hits and, um, one kid becomes fairly non-compliant with their ortho K because sometimes kids forget kids focus on, Hey, I can wake up and see, I can do sports. I can swim. It's like magic. That's what they care about. Parents say, I'm willing to spend X because I care about your eyes not getting worse. So parents have one thing that they care about. Kids have the other thing. Kids don't really think, you know, when I'm 55, I'll have a three times uh, less uh, risk of myopic maculopathy. They don't, they don't think that. So when COVID hits and they have, they're not uh, in California, they've been in, under house arrest for a year. They can't go out. They can't go out in the sunshine. They can't ex get exposed to ultraviolet light, which, by the way, kills viruses. That's enough to get this podcast destroyed. Yeah, it's done. We're, yeah, we're, we're done, right? Uh, so we can talk about anything now, right? <laughs> so they can't go outside. So kids who only wear their contacts or appreciate it because they can see that this kid was non-compliant. The other kid lost or broke one lens. Now, she was a minus four, I think. So she just wore one lens for five months until I got her back in the office. And uh, what was fascinating about that case is not only, well, first the eye that was under ortho K, which had been growing at, you know, 30 microns a year or 0 0.02 or 0 0.03 millimeters. So an excellent outcome, even for the other kid. Um, the eye that didn't have the contacts, it was exposed to, um, full-time myopic defocus for distance, presumably for close as well. She would probably use her 20-20 eye unless she came in real close. But most of the time, there's just this plus four blur, which she barely was bothered by. Kids are very adaptable, by the way. You always have to remember that. They're not little adults. But um, that eye shrank by 0.2 millimeters. 0.2 millimeters of shrinking is remarkable. 
I mean, it was it was a fantastic case. Now, I didn't have uh, choroidal thickness on her pre-treatment because I um, wish I had, uh, but I did check her choroidal thickness at that visit. And this kid, I don't know, she was 10 or something like that. I had her look at the OCT and I say, uh, see that choroid there? She said, uh-huh. I said, which one's thicker? Uh, that one, you know, so you didn't need image processing or anything. It was just like, you know, a big difference. So then the question is, you know, is that sustained? Because we, you know, got her back into contacts and um, it'd be a great story if I could remember it, but I I think it was still thicker. Um, And then she lost it again and she shrank again over the time it took to get a new lens. So now that's not really a practical treatment either to do monocular ortho-K, but under correction, properly leveraged, slows growth. It's just how could you leverage it? The other thing that that really annoys me, and not just because you asked it, but everybody asks it, is, you know, I don't know. People sometimes just really love to be able to say that uh, you can't do anything about myopia. So they love that undercorrection didn't work because it was so popular for a while, you know, without evidence. But yeah. you'll still get parents who will say, can you drop the number? Well, I was trained that way. I was trained uh, that way. Yeah. yeah. Right. I was trained that way. Yeah. So, uh, but, but people love it when it, when it doesn't work. Um, so, uh, the, so the thing is, I like to take things in, in a logical uh, path, for instance. So if under correction is terrible, that's the official opinion of everybody in official optometry and ophthalmology. You must, must, must never undercorrect a myo. Isn't that the, that's the party line. Yes, I think so. So if that's the case, if you actually look at kids a month after they get a single vision spectacle or contact lens prescription, there can be a massive amount of myopia in that first month. And why not? That's the strongest signal. You can either say it's the strongest signal to grow or it's a failure to suppress the growth in a new prescription. But let's say it's a stimulus to grow, they grow. They don't notice anything, you know, they come in 2020, the 2030 by a month, maybe or two months. And um, are you supposed to have them back and top off the prescription? I mean, it's just crazy. Have you seen, hang on one second. I don't know if you've seen these lenses. I mean, this is gonna be, yeah, if you ever search these then they keep advertising it to you, but I use these sometimes these Alpharetus lenses where you rotate or you slide the lenses. Have you ever seen these? Oh, this is cool. Yeah. So, so this would be a myopia treatment. You start them off with a minus two and you say, look, a month from now, just tweak this a little bit. So you're never undercorrect. You telling me at the end of the year, they're going to be a minus two. That's just insane. It'd be a minus four. It's crazy. It's crazy talk. So while it's probably true, there's, there's no proof that mild undercorrection does anything strategic use of plus obviously controls myopia it's just where should you put it are there strategic ways to put it and like i said earlier when i said any damn plus any damn place that's not based just on uh, coming up with a silly phrase or without 
clinical evidence. I was using a little, all sorts of things. It's a little silly phrase. A little based in the It's a little silly. It's my specialty. Yeah. I do snark. <laughs> I do sarcasm. I do irony. And I do silly. Uh, but uh, always uh, based in um, what I would consider science, at least clinical science or what passes for it in my office. So yeah, I don't think it matters really where you put the plus specifically, but the plus has to be effective wherever you put it. And that can still be addressed by scientific inquiry as to whether there's strategic advantages. When you think about axial length, because we did, is, is it now that in your mind that axial length, are you, are you moving more toward choroidal thickness or axial length is just an indicator of, of halting progression? Um, but choroidal thickness really tells you where the sweet spot. Well, I, uh, I think I've thought for years that that would be a great tool. For instance, I th there might be some intellectual property in there now by now, but um, by uh, detecting short-term changes in choroidal thickness, you ought to be able to uh, predict whether your design. It might, you could even test a design on a patient and 30 minutes later, look for a choroidal response. You can say, okay, this eye is responding to this signal. It's a, it's a go for this design. I think that's conceivably possible. The problem with choroid, uh, and I don't have an um, automated way to, to measure it. There are such tools out there. Uh, Michael Collins uh, group has written the most about uh, choroidal thickness and measuring it precisely and looking at diurnal variations and response to uh, imposed uh, blur, et cetera. And so they have some tools for automating the analysis of it. But in some eyes, it's hard to tell the interface, you know, so it's still subject to interpretation, but it seems to me it ought to be, you know, a tool that we could use. Um, so I don't spend a lot of time looking at it uh, probably because, um, I don't know, days get busy, but it would have been nice to have that on every patient that I had and time to analyze it afterwards. But um, most likely, and perhaps we don't know, any axial length change is moderated or created even, at least initially, by changes in the choroid, particularly shortening. And then the question I have, because I've had some cases where and this one case, uh, this kid, he's like six foot four or something. He's like, Hi, how are you doing, kid? You know, which is really disconcerting. Uh, but um, he had uh, 0.65 millimeters reduction in eye length. It was just gigantic. I mean, for a kid yeah. that's growing gigantic, for his eyes to be, you know, shrinking, well, you know, not shrinking, yes, yeah. but small conceptually, amount. that's not a small amount. That's that's well, um, well no, no, that's like not, a diopter, small amount, but it's a, that's almost two diopters, and he ended up right. mostly plano. So you know how did that happen? And I didn't have, I didn't have pre-treatment choroidal thicknesses on him. Um, so axial length allows you to see those things and to make those findings believable because without axial length, I would say, well, he started out at minus 150 with a manifest non-cycloplegic refraction. And because I'm a big believer in these contacts and he doesn't want to have his vision go bad, he's just guessing and he's never picking the minus and it looks like he got better. 
with axial length that you just can't fudge that thing. So it's, um, you know, case yeah. closed. Explaining it is a little more so difficult. In, well, I think, I think the, you know, again, you know, my approach to myopia has always been to try to make the every, to, to make it accessible to the every man, I would say. And, um, and I think that axial length is one thing that I, seems like a natural evolution of what you but I, I've always my, my I've always advocated like you start you start by doing something that is not just sending a kid outside. You start by doing something without having all the tools. Because I think making telling everybody you got to have all the tools to do anything, I think it's just it's a challenge. Because then most people are like, oh, I can't do all this right now. I'm not going to invest all. This. But but once you see, and this is to Cheryl's case, you know we've had an Aladdin now for a few months and. Cheryl has asked me like, okay, well now it's time. I can probably get some other information. And I'm right now I've had it long enough to say, oh, that's interesting. You know, I mean, I, I can't, I, I can say that's interesting. And then once I have it long enough, then I can start to see that you're talking. I guess my point is, is that I've always been an advocate and do myopia without, you can do it acceptably without axial length. Mm -hmm. It just really tells you a lot more. You've got it. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's generally my argument as well. I mean, uh, we could get t-shirts made uh, instead of just do it for Nike, just do something. I mean, for Christ's sake, just, just do something. It's simple as pie to slow myopia. I, I used to show a slide of rhesus monkeys, um, just, just for Earl, putting contacts on an eye. And it was a biofinity plus 250 or something. And I said, anybody can control myopia by 40%. And they could, if you could get a monkey to put a contact lens in the eye, and it's, and it's that lens, which hardly anyone doesn't like, and the Blink study showed a 40% reduction. Uh, so um, they must have been influenced by my monkey slide to do that study, I'll have to ask them. But it's true, You, I mean, so just slow myopia by 40% with a perfectly acceptable, non-expensive, you know, lens, don't measure axial length, don't promise you're going to shoot for 80%, which is my average when I look at it. Uh, but if you want to, so just do something. I, I even have this theory around in my head that um, there ought to be a lens specifically made to just not step on the gas. So that would be the Hippocratic Philcon A lens, which I haven't trademarked. I've offered it to all the companies. I think that'd be a great lens. Just do no harm. And so don't add minus in the periphery. So there's several lenses that have a very flat optical profile. Maru, which not a lot of people use, but for Minicon, mm -hmm. it's extremely flat. They did that on purpose. Did not necessarily, for, yeah, not necessarily for myopia. I think they just had a corporate philosophy. If we're saying we're making a minus three, let's make a minus three. Don't make it a 350. Don't make it minus six in the periphery. So if you look at that profile, it's very flat. I haven't done any studies with that. Air optics and night and day, very flat optical profiles compared to their competitors. Also, I believe that was kind of a corporate philosophy of delivering what they said. Matter of fact, when they first come on the market with night and day, this predates uh, your time probably, they had to counsel practitioners that if they switch from brand A to their lens, um, they might have to um, put in a little bit more minus because their minus three is a minus three. 
at least that was the original kind of thinking. So one of the studies that used that lens as the, the control lens against a myopia control lens, which was a study I was involved with, with the Aussies, that lens showed an 18% reduction in myopia progression relative to a single vision spectacle historical control. So if that's the case, just do something. I mean, that's easy. Nobody doesn't dislike that one. Then I have the Sarah Lee lens, which was like the EP lens from ProClear off the market. Nobody didn't like that lens. Well, presbyopes, because they couldn't read great, but you could put that on any kid and they would, they would, you wouldn't even have to talk about it. Just do it and you're going to slow, slow things down. So everybody can do something. And then if you, you just practice to the level of your, uh, professional competence and comfort level, and then you can expand over time. Not everybody has to be a specialist in myopia, but if you don't do anything and it becomes a standard of care and 80% of your practice is young myopes, um, practically speaking, you, you can't send that out. And if it's standard of care, you have an obligation uh, to do something about it. So do something, 40% is great. It's, you know, uh, just don't overcharge for that because you're not monitoring, you're not adjusting, you know, you're just altering it at the beginning. It's not that complicated. And uh, the patient reaps the rewards. And then as you see that you're doing better, then maybe you would like to bring on somebody to do more or bring in the instrumentation or refer out for ortho -K. A lot of doctors, I have an ophthalmologist in the area uh, who, who uh, pediatric, likes to control myopia, um, perfectly comfortable with ortho-K, but she doesn't want to do it. So it's a rare experience to get referrals from ophthalmology, uh, but she's quite enthusiastic to do that. And um, so that's a nice, uh, a nice shift in my practice near after all these years. And I have children of retinal specialists coming in to see me. So um, if they won't admit it, at the country club, uh, they at least uh, care about uh, stretching eyes in their children. So, so yeah, just do something. Axial length, the real key for axial length for me is if I'm attempting to modify my treatment to achieve my historical averages, uh, then with axial length, as early as one month, but usually more like three months, I can detect whether there's a change in slope and I have this uh, new device I'm testing and helping uh, with uh, with Hogstrites. Um, it's called the Lenstar Myopia. So it has tracking software in there from my app, and you know that shows uh, how it might progress over time. People dispute that, but that's just from the literature. You can adjust that. The practitioner can adjust everything. You can adjust what kind of treatment uh, effects you're expecting with various treatments, or you can take that provided sort of averages from the literature or as things change, as studies come out, you can modify that. So you're trying to get a reasonable expectation of if you do this treatment, should you get a change in slope? So with axial length, precise uh, measurements allow you to make those decisions. And so if you say, okay, well, let's start with a plus 250 ad, or let's say with ortho-K, you start with a standard design or even a modified design. And but you still have a little bit left over in that design to allow you to get more aggressive. And you look at three months and you see no change in slope. Well, that 
to me would be a warning sign that you're not getting the appropriate signal. So for ortho-K, you might try a redesign, get more aggressive on the treatment zone size or the sphericity or something, or you would add atropine. And in the soft lens world, if you're not already in the most aggressive design, you can usually increase the ad or decrease the zone. Uh, I find sometimes um, I'm fairly convinced if you go from a multifocal that has an aspheric zone, it's essentially spreading out the plus and moving the maximum plus further out. If you switch to a bifocal, brings that plus in closer. So if you look at the studies in bifocal contacts and multifocal contacts, the most effective ones were multi-ring studies, my site and my study with the AccuView bifocal, we found 80% control with you know the AccuView bifocal contact lens uh, in, in axial length. So um, axial length allows you to do that, whereas refractively, it, you know you have to be outside of plus or minus a half diopter to really be sure. And so that's just not a very strong tool to base your decisions on. You know, Tom, I, I'm going to be respectful of your time because I told you we'd be right in an hour, and I don't think that's. I think there's not probably a better way we can this up. So, thanks again for for being on today. You did mention an app, so where can people find your app and give us all those details? Well, it's called My Appia, and uh, so you can find that on the Google Play Store, and you can even pay for it. You could be the only person in the world that would pay for an app, which is an exciting. A consequence of the app world uh, so anyway uh, that's been fun um, and I, I think it's a good tool it just helps you uh, to show not only what would change over time based on the literature if you do standard treatment and it gets worse and then um, it also shows that even when you have a very effective treatment there's still an age decay function over time and you're still not at zero in your expectations, there's still gonna be worsening. Uh, so that helps to mollify parents that think that myopia control or myopia management means it's gone, um, like laser, you know, makes myopia go away, uh, or that uh, it's a failure if it's continuing to worsen. So it helps to illustrate that. That's always, I think, a useful uh, tool.